Well, if you have your Bible, then please turn to Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. And we've been going through the book of Acts, so we are in this passage. We're going to be covering a rather comprehensive passage, but nonetheless, we're going to get a big picture of what God wants to say to us. And so Acts chapter 16, and I want to begin by reading from verses 16 to 24 first. And so, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, last Sunday, we've learned that God led the Apostle Paul and his missionary team uh, from the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, which is in Syria, all the way to the west, crossing the Asian Crescent, and ended up in the city of Philippi, which is in Greece. And that's about like 1,300 kilometers of traveling. And by God's amazing grace, what we've learned last week is that They proclaimed the gospel at this location called the place of prayer, whereby a woman named Lydia became a follower of Jesus. You know, Philippi will become the first city where a Christian church was first planted in Europe. And what we saw earlier in Acts 16 was indeed a fruitful ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but I like it when things are fruitful or when things are going well in my life. Uh, I like it when God is doing mighty works in in our church family. Uh, I like it when church ministry is growing and becoming more and more effective and fruitful and that believers are walking in the truth of the Lord and are faithfully serving him. And so for me as a pastor, I have no greater joy than to hear the church walking in the truth. And that's probably what happened to the Apostle Paul. He, you know, in the period of his previous passage, he hit a home run, or jackpot, so to speak, in his gospel ministry. Saw, saw Lydia become convert, and maybe there, be, there were other people who became converts to Christianity. And because of that, what does he do next? Well, he and his team, as you will learn in verse 16, he and his team returned to the same place, the place of prayer, possibly to do more evangelism and perhaps to hope to see a similar result. Now, as we have just read, the outcome was not what the missionaries anticipated. 
Uh, you don't always hit the jackpot twice. Although I'll say I've been reading things on Facebook that some folks are just winning the lottery twice or even consecutively. Uh, but I digressed. So, but things got rather rough for these folks. Uh, but know this, brothers and sisters, that, that life may not always be flowery. You will face suffering. You will face hardship. You may be wrong and for the wrong reason and perhaps even be persecuted. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, uh, we have seen a number of times how the apostles and the early church suffered persecution. And the Bible gives us a repetition of that theme for a reason. It is to emphasize the truth of the Christian life, and it is to help us to look at the theme of suffering, for instance, uh, from a different angle. And so the big idea, or the main point of this passage, this extensive passage, is learning to respond to an ordeal, or learning to respond to suffering as a Christian. You see, it's not a matter of if you will suffer, but rather when you will suffer. Suffering will come for all Christians, one way or another. And God, in his sovereignty and his providence, he designed suffering for the purpose of either testing the genuineness of your faith or refining or even strengthening your faith with fiery trial. And when you suffer, how will you respond to it? And that's what we're going to learn today in this passage. And that is when you face an ordeal, use it as opportunities to glorify God. But how are, we going to do, how are we going to do that? Well, we'll get to that in a bit. But looking at this passage, from verses 16 to 18, this part of the text sets up the big idea. We have a situation where Paul encounters a slave girl as, she was, as he was going back to the place of prayer. Uh, she's a complete contrast to Lydia in the previous passage. And if you remember, Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman who came who was from the upper class, came from the city of Thyatira. This girl, however, was in the lower class. She was enslaved. She was exploited by her owners for their financial gain. And also, we don't even know her name. And not only that, she was possessed by a spirit of divination. And the owners used that to profit their business. Now, Philippi was a, was a Gentile city, was a Greek city. Uh, it would have been a polytheistic culture with pagan practices. And in Greek mythology, there was a story told of a, about a spirit of python, or a pythonian spirit. Uh, that's what the spirit of divination means. Now, python was a serpent that protected the oracle of Delphi, uh, who was said to be able to communicate uh, with supernatural entities and prophesy the future. So in other words, that's divination. In the Old Testament, God condemned the practice of divination when he stated in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26, do not practice divination or seek omens. And the Old Testament law also forbidden God's people from consulting with mediums and necromancers. But these Gentiles did not follow and worship the God of Israel. And so they didn't follow the Old Testament law. And so the slave girl, this slave girl was possessed by a Pythonian spirit, but we can also attribute that as 
a demonic spirit. Certainly it is demonic. And her owners, as we see in its text in, at the end of verse 16, her owners profited by her fortune-telling. Now, fascinating enough, this phrase fortune-telling uh, in the Greek has something to do with being out of one's mind. And so even though she was possessed by a demon, she was also driven by madness. And we see a lot of that example in the Gospels in Jesus' ministry, which I think explains the reason why she was following Paul and his team and crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You know, she was, telling, she was telling the truth. She was telling the truth. Paul and his team were indeed servants of God. And not only that, she was able to use biblical terminology in referring God as the Most High God, which was an Old Testament designation of the God of Israel. And she also told, these, told people that these men spoke of the way of salvation. But, as you see here in verse, the beginning of verse 18, she just kept announcing this message out loud, uh, however many days. We don't know how many days, but it should have been almost every day, to the point that it got rather annoying. Now, I'm sure all of us have been annoyed by someone or something in our life. Perhaps that happened today. Perhaps that happened this past week. Uh, whether it's a friend who just won't stop talking to you or a coworker who's just too loud, or your spouse not doing what you expect him or her to do, uh, you get annoyed by that. Now, this is the only recorded instance, I think, in the New Testament where the great apostle Paul uh, got annoyed. So I suppose that being annoyed isn't always a bad thing. Uh, but you can imagine him getting harped by this girl every day. And so Paul just casts a demon out of her in the name of Jesus, and this is the first instance in the book of Acts whereby a demon was cast out of a person. And some people, we understand this as exorcism. But the world in our day portrays this idea in an unbiblical fashion. See, biblically speaking, when you read the, when you read the New Testament, the apostles and Jesus casted out demons. And it's always an immediate result. And it's always done just once. Now, why did Paul do such a thing? Why did Paul just cast the demon out of her? Now, I think a reasonable explanation here is that Paul didn't want his ministry to be associated with demons, and wickedness, and evil. And to see the fact that she's crying out the truth about these men for many days may be perceived by others that she's just part of this crazy missionary team. And plus... While the demon seems to be telling the truth here, we must remember that the evil ones are always disguising themselves as angels of light. And so when Paul cast out the demon, it certainly was good news, isn't it? It's good news because the slave girl was now free and was no longer possessed by the spirit of Python. However, in verses 19 to 24, the owners of the slave girl was unhappy about what happened to her. They saw that their hope of gain, that is their business, their trade, was gone. That means they've lost their means of gaining wealth, even if it means exploiting her for 
financial gain and selfish gain. And sadly, um, doesn't this still happen in our day? Uh, we can talk about human trafficking. We can talk about individuals and corporations preying upon vulnerable people like the children and women and refugees. We can talk about the opioid crisis in our nation. We can talk about the slavery that happened in America many, many years ago. Uh, and when people fought for justice and to end exploitation, the owners would get upset about it. Unfortunately, we live in the last days. The godlessness of this, in these last days is manifested in greediness, heartlessness, and selfishness. And someone responds, as we see in this text, the owners ganged up on Paul and Silas. Uh, they seized them and arrested them and dragged them out by force into the marketplace before the rulers of Philippi, known as the magistrates here. Now, remember, in the missionary team, there was Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke. But what about Luke and Timothy? Aren't they part of the team? Why weren't they dragged out as well? Well, I think... It was because of ethnic prejudice. See, Luke was a Gentile, and Timothy was half Jew and half Gentile. He was half Greek. And Silas and Paul, they were completely Jewish, so it's quite possible that their skin tone was more noticeable. And hence, the owners complained to the magistrates in verse 20 that these men were Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful, for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so Paul and Silas, they were beaten, they were stripped naked, uh, and then beaten more with rods, and were thrown into the deepest and darkest part of the prison. And they were locked up. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Apostle Paul, we often look at him as the great missionary, the great theologian of our back in that day. And he's the one who con contributed many of the New Testament letters. But we may often forget that he was also a great sufferer. A great sufferer. If you remember in Acts 14, you remember he almost got stoned to death. Try to imagine what he would have looked like back then. Perhaps a disfigured face with scars around his face and his body. And I'm reminded of what he said in Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, that from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Why? For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And then when I look at this text, and I reflect on my own life, I cannot say that I've suffered too much in my lifetime. I don't know what you've gone go through in your life, but I'm sure there, there may be some here in this room who have suffered more than me. But there is a lesson to be learned from this passage, and that is when you face an ordeal, turn it into an opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. To share in Christ's sufferings. See, when you look at this passage alone, we should be reminded of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was beaten, flogged, spat upon, punched, stripped naked from his garments, wrong as an innocent man, and was thrown into prison and eventually crucified on the cross. 
I'm not saying that we should seek to suffer to the extent like Paul and Jesus to prove ourselves to be Christians. Or, but what I am saying is that, as Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Christians who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will suffer for his name's sake to a certain degree when we serve him faithfully and live out the Christian life. And we should to rejoice in doing so. And so now, to turn back in your Bibles, we'll get you the prison scene in verses 25 to 34. And this is the famous story in Acts, whereby Paul evangelizes to the Philippian jailer and his family. So follow along as I read from verses 25 to 34. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so now, at this time, it is midnight. Paul and Silas were in prison. But how do they respond to their suffering, to their persecution? Well, for some Christians, they may have reacted with regret over the choice of their life. It's like, I shouldn't have gone to this missions trip. I've suffered. I'll never do it again. But they spent the night hours here praying and singing hymns to God, praising God. In other words, they were worshiping the Lord here. Just imagine all of us right now were thrown in prison at this hour. We would have a choir in prison singing hymns and songs of praise in prison to our great God and Savior. And, so, and it's quite possible as they're praying, that they're praying for their enemies just as Jesus taught us to do in Matthew 5. And this leads us to another lesson, and that is when you face an ordeal, turn it into an opportunity to worship God. Now, how is it possible for any of us to do such a thing? How is it possible for Paul and Silas to praise God under such conditions? And that's because worshiping God and being joyful in the situation does not depend on our feelings does not depend on our circumstances. They're able to worship precisely because they knew their God. That, the, that God is sovereign. He's in control over all circumstances. 
even in this situation, God allowed them to go through suffering. And that's why Paul, when he wrote to the Philippians, in Philippians 4.4, he said to them, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, rejoice. See, Paul did not write that out, write that out of the blue. The man, the man here who told others to rejoice had also learned to rejoice himself under such dire circumstances. And even James 1 exhorts all of us to count it all joy. Our brothers and sisters, when you make trials of various kinds, we are to rejoice. See, here's what reality should look like when we as Christians suffer persecution. See, the persecutors may be able to lock us up, but they shouldn't be able to lock up our devotion and praise to God. We should not be silenced. And even if they duct tape our mouth, they cannot rob us of our joy and praise to God from our hearts. And even if they end up trying to end up, end up, end up killing us and ending our lives, well, as the Apostle Paul says, what to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we're living in this life right now, we live it all to the glory of Christ. And if we die, well, that's great. I'm, the, I'm with the Lord forever. That's a gain for me. And so, turn into an opportunity to worship God during the situation. I also notice another lesson we can take away from verse 25. And that is when you meet an ordeal, turn it into an opportunity to set a godly example for others. Set a godly example for others. See, another thing to keep in mind when we're suffering as Christians is that others are paying attention to us. Just look again in verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They were listening to them pray and sing. And it's at this moment, if we're suffering, we could either respond to our suffering in a worldly way, such as being angry and impatient, or in a Christ-centered way in a godly way that testifies to the world that we are disciples of Jesus. Now, you can apply this not only in prison, but almost anywhere else. You know, this past week I was visiting, for instance, Mary Bonk in the hospital, and I just thought about this, that when you're suffering and you end up in the hospital, you can, respond, you can be a godly example during that situation where you can be, a, where you can be Christ's witnesses where before the nurses, the doctors, and even other patients. Now, why do I bring this up? Why is, why is this important for me to bring up? Well, allow me to get, allow me to get ahead of ourselves. If you just look at your, in your Bible, look at verse 28. When everyone had the chance to break out of prison, Paul said to the jailer, do not harm yourself. Why? Look at, look at this. For we are all here. So for, for, for whatever reason, the prisoners, these prisoners, it wasn't just Paul and Silas who were in prison. There are these other inmates here. And they noticed that Paul and Silas did not leave. And so they chose, they chose not to as well. I assume. Perhaps they noticed something very different, something very unique about these followers of Jesus. And that, that's indeed what Christians are supposed to be like. To be different be set apart, to be holy, to be set apart from the world. And it's quite possible, maybe, 
although the text doesn't tell us that they were, as they were praising God, they were maybe ministering to the inmates. I don't know. It's possible. Because remember what Paul said in Ephesians, that he was asking the Ephesians to pray for him, that, the, that he can preach the gospel boldly, so the mystery of the gospel will be proclaimed, even in prison. Now, going back to verse 26, as they were singing and praying, suddenly there was a great earthquake, and all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were fastened, and it's not because their singing was bad. If their singing was bad, maybe that, maybe that would cause the earthquake, but, but certainly the prison scene is repeated event in Acts when the apostles were in prison. We remember in Acts 5 and Acts 12, where the angel of the Lord broke the apostles out of prison, and on both occasions, the angel gave them direction and guidance of where to go. Here, on the other hand, there is no mention of the angel of the Lord to lead and to guide them, but it is still nothing short of a miracle. And Paul and Silas, they could have just broke out of prison here with the rest of the prisoners, but for some reason, they just did not leave. I don't know the exact reason why, but quite possibly, Paul, who was familiar with the Roman law, understood that if he left, the jailer would have been executed. And that is really what led the Philippian jailer to respond with panic and fear after he woke up. Why? Because he saw the doors open, and the prison cell was dark, and he immediately assumed that the prisoners escaped this dark dungeon. And as a soldier, it was his responsibility to guard the prison and make absolutely certain that no prisoners escaped. If he, was, if he were to be negligent of his duty, he would have been executed. But also read that not only will he be executed, but before he gets executed, he would have been tortured. And so, pulling a sword on himself uh, would have been a quick and swift way to die. However, Paul stopped him before the jailer did anything to himself. And here, we learn another important lesson. When you face an ordeal, turn it into an opportunity to evangelize. To evangelize. You see, the jailer was trembling here. He was trembling with fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. He asked them a very important question that all sinners should ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, as I thought about this, I thought this question was a simple question, but as I've studied it, uh, it's a little more deeper than that. And we should ask ourselves, what did the question intend to mean here? Did the jailer want to know how to be safe from physical harm or punishment? Or did he want to know the way of eternal salvation? Since we can assume that he heard the slave girl say that Paul and Silas proclaimed the way of salvation. Now, I believe he wanted to know how to be saved from eternal damnation and the wrath of God. And the question he asked has a bit of an irony. And 
the jailer called them sirs. But the word can also be translated as lords or masters because they come from the same Greek word, kyrios, which is usually a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. So he regarded them as lords and sirs out of deep respect for them, and maybe he was sensing that there was a, a divine force at work around them or perhaps in them. Because remember, he was a pagan. So it's possible that he thought of them as gods who caused an, an earthquake and break out of prison. And in response to his question, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved and you and your household. So the irony is that there's a bit of a play on words. The jailer called them Lord, he called them Kyrios, but these men pointed them to the one true Lord, the one true Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. You see, Paul and Silas were not the Lord of salvation. Only Jesus is. Jesus is the way of salvation. So Paul and Silas explained the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his household, which means family. And certainly Paul and Silas explained further to the jailer what believing in the Lord Jesus meant because he wouldn't have known who this Jesus was that he's supposed to believe in. And so by the grace of God, the jailer and his family were saved on that same night. They received the gift of eternal life found in Christ and they got baptized, symbolizing that their old self has died and they are now new creation in Christ. And their reaction and response was nothing short of joy. And like Lydia, the jailer was very hospitable and provided a meal before them. And so I wonder, if there is anyone here that listening to this sermon this morning is also asking the same question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And if that is you, well, the answer is that Paul and Silas did not give, a, did not give an answer of saying, oh, you got to do, do, do good deeds. You got to do penance. No, the answer is, is not those. The simple answer to that simple question is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, this word believe is not just an, it's not an intellectual faith, or, nor is it easy believism. Like anyone could just say they believe. They say they believe in Jesus. But what does that mean? Because even if you think about it, even demons believe in Jesus but they refuse to obey him. They refuse to change their sinful lifestyle. See, the word believe means faith. It means placing your entire trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. You believe that he's the only way, truth, and the life, that nothing can come to the Father except through him. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only way to salvation, whereby your sins can be forgiven. And believing also implies a total commitment and loyalty to our Lord and Master Jesus. It is a turning away, of si- turning away from your sins. It's repenting of your sins and turning to Christ. Turning to Christ and confessing Him to Him as your Lord and Savior. 
And if you believe in this Jesus, you will be saved. And if you have further questions about what that means, you're free to come and talk to me about it after the service. And so finally, we get to the verses, the passage in verses 35 to 40. So follow along as I read. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and, let, and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now this is the last lesson I want to suggest you to think about. And that is when you face an ordeal, turn it into an opportunity to exercise your civil rights. You see, after the night is gone, here comes another day. When Paul and Silas were released from prison, but they're to leave in peace and even be thrown out secretly. Now, I don't know why the magistrates suddenly wanted to release these missionaries. Perhaps the Romans were, they were aware that there was no real justification for their charges against them. So they, might have so they might not have understood why they were being accused in the first place. But whatever the reason might have been, we do know, however, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not happy about this. He was not happy with the way he's treated. And here, he protests in verse 37. And you know, some translations like the New American Standard Bible would say this, they have beaten us in public without trial. You know, the Roman government strongly protected the rights of the Roman citizens. And it was a violation against Roman law to beat their own citizens and throw them into prison without trial. And so since Paul was a Roman citizen, the magistrates certainly made a grave mistake and they were deeply embarrassed and afraid about what they have done. And so what they did could be devastating for them in their city. They could lose their jobs and be severely punished. And therefore the magistrates were to respect the Roman citizens by, by taking Paul and Silas out themselves here. Now, why did Paul insist on getting the magistrates to escort them out? Well, Paul's reputation here would have been a stake if he were thrown out secretly. Remember, he and Silas were persecuted publicly and unjustly. People would have thought of him as a criminal. So he needed to be vindicated here. And furthermore, he wanted to make sure that the church in Philippi was safe as he was about to leave. And without addressing the injustice, the magistrates could abuse their power by mistreating the missionaries and churches and Christians. And so Paul needed to deal with that. And by insisting on a public apology by the magistrates, it can possibly positively influence the mission and the church 
uh, in the mission in the church there, granting them more respect and admiration uh, in the eyes of the public. Yet at the same time, we also learn something about the Apostle Paul and his character, and that is he was compassionate and rather forgiving. He could have exercised his right and reported this incident to the higher authority and hold them accountable, but he chose to forgive. He chose to forgive the wrong and not seek revenge. He was not vindicatory. And when he was asked to leave the city, he did not insist on his rights, but he gladly obeyed their wishes. And so what can we glean from this passage here? See, when the government crosses their line or even overreach and break their own laws to the harm of their own citizens, now I think there may be times when we as Christians who are citizens of a country should be able to exercise our rights and challenge our government to obey their own rules and, be, and not be out of line. Now, as Canadians, we have the charters of rights and freedom, uh, that every Canadian possesses the fundamental freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of thought, freedom of conscience, freedom of, of peaceful assembly, freedom of belief and opinion and expression, all those things. And as the government tries to take those rights away from, uh, from Canadians living in Canada, and even Christians living in Canada, we should hold them accountable for their role and responsibility so that they don't abuse their power and mistreat other Christians and churches. And yet, we should do it rather carefully and wisely and prayerfully. See, the government isn't perfect. They make mistakes, and sometimes they lack integrity. They break, sometimes they may even break their own laws out of ignorance. And so we've got to be wise about this because it doesn't always happen in the, in the New Testament. But what the New Testament is rather clear on is that we as believers are to submit to our governing authorities because they're appointed by God for the interests and good order of society. And so I'll let you reflect on that part of the lesson. And so our passage concludes with Paul and Silas visiting Lydia and other Christians one last time strengthen and to encourage this new planted church in Philippi before they continue their missionary journey. Now, I want you to make one observation, and that is it seems like Luke here stays behind in the city of Philippi. Now, we know this because at this, because at this point, Luke drops the use of we here that he began to use in verse 10 in Acts 16. And then he starts, to say, starts using this word they, they departed, instead of saying we departed. And a possible explanation for why Luke decided to stay behind was because he was there to disciple and to pastor, maybe pastor this new flock to be spiritually mature in Christ. And so we can also learn something about Luke here, that he had a pastoral heart. And so what a comprehensive passage that we have just covered about suffering and learning to respond to suffering and to use, those, and to use that as an opportunity to glorify Christ. And so to sum, in summary, when you face an ordeal, turn into an opportunity to share in Christ's suffering, to worship, to set a godly example for others, to evangelize, to exercise your rights. That is impossible. And so in conclusion, as I wrap up, 
we should praise God for his work in the city of Philippi. This church, this church eventually became a rather healthy church who was very supportive of Paul's missionary journey. And I cannot help but to say that God here in this passage, in this whole chapter, is willing to save sinners from all socioeconomic status and diverse background. As you remember, Lydia was a, was a wealthy woman in the upper class in the city of Thyatira. And the Philippian jailer was probably in the middle class along with his family. But what about the lower class? Well, for personally, as I was reflecting on this text, I wonder what happened to the slave girl after the demon was cast out of her. I'm sure she may have been included among the first Christian church in Europe, including the jailer's household, and maybe even some inmates if they were released from prison, and even other brothers and sisters in Christ. And last of all, we have here Luke, the discipler, the historian, and the physician who was willing to stay behind and to minister to this new, new church plant. What an amazing thing that the gospel can do. The gospel can transform lives. It has a power to save. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I pray and hope that God will open up the eyes of your heart to believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. What a passage. What a text. Lord, we suffer. We go through hard times and trials in our life. Yet we often forget how we are supposed to respond as Christians. And I pray that you forgive us. Forgive us for the times, for the ways we did not respond in a way that was glorifying to your name. Pray that you would remind us from this passage how we are to respond to, an, to ordeals. To sufferings and turn that into an opportunity to serve you, to glorify your name. And I pray if there is if there is someone in this room, in this sanctuary who does not know Christ, pray that you will open up the eyes of his or her heart to receive Christ just like Lydia, because God, you open up the eyes of her heart to pay attention to what Paul was said. So I pray the same thing. If there is someone here that would you please sovereignly work in that person's heart so that they would know who you are and to accept your word and receive the gospel, receive the gift of eternal life, and be saved this morning. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.